Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Fountain Church Podcast. Our prayer is that God speaks to you in a real and powerful way. So go ahead, grab your Bible, grab a notepad and your coffee, and let's dive in. Um, we're going to dive into today to uh, part four, and, and really the theme verse for our series is Romans chapter 15, verse four, and it says, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scripture and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. So let me take you back to one of our wars here, the, the Civil War. Now, the Civil War, nobody anticipated, nobody anticipated the devastation that this war would bring. Like, like nobody, nobody saw this one coming. In fact, there was a great underestimation. The North underestimated the Confederate Army. They did not think that it was going to end in the bloodshed like it did. They did not see this massive war happening. They saw maybe a few fistfights. They never saw it exploding the way that it did. And the first battle, the Battle of Bull Run, is a great picture of this because people had a false perception and reality about what was happening, so much so that people from all over came to watch the fight as a picnic, meaning they dressed in their dapper clothes, they baked their cakes, they got their little drinks, they got their little tablecloths to come and watch as if you were watching a UFC fight. Like, like there was a sense of ease. Uh, they felt like we're going we're gonna to have some entertainment. Some people are going to throw some blows. But how many of you guys know this ended in a bloodshed of a battle? In fact, it goes down in United States history as being the, uh, or, or declared as the worst picnic ever <laughs> because of everything that had manifested. And the reality for you and I is that we are in a spiritual battle. The Bible is very clear that there is a source of evil that wages war against humanity. And something we can't see is affecting what we can see. And we have to be careful. We have to be careful because it's so easy, even as, as the church, you know, we kind of come, it's Sunday. We're going to go a little, do a church thing, go get some lunch and take some notes. And, and it's going to be a great day. I just need to feel good. Just want to kind of feel good a little bit today. Listen, nothing's wrong with that. But, but can I just tell you, if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we will mistake our Christian life for a picnic rather than a battlefield. And, 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 and I want you to hear that the enemy loves to wage war in this area, especially around the reality of religion Verse relationship. Uh, religion says, I have to. Relationship says, I get to. I want to. Right? Uh, religion says, I have a routine for God. Relationship says, I have a relationship and intimacy with God. It's a big difference. Are you guys tracking with me? And the enemy is so cool with you being religious. The enemy does not mind you being religious. He just doesn't want you to connect to the source of life. He does not want you connected to the living God. He does not want you walking with him in fellowship and in intimacy. He does not want you following Jesus. You can do your religious thing. Just don't get connected to the source of life. Just don't get connected to the living God. And that drops us right in the heart of our text. We're going to be in the book of Genesis today. And we're going to look at two legends. Uh, again, not make-believe legends, but, but two people that really existed um, that we're going to learn from today. And they're Adam and Eve. Many of you guys have, may, may have heard of them. And I want to give you a little bit of context of what the world was like before the world as you and I know. We go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And I was going to put a spinning globe, but it didn't work out. So this is what you get. Uh, just imagine a globe is spinning on the screen. And God is creating the heavens and the earth. 
God is creating all things. And he gets to the pinnacle of his creation, which is you and I, which is mankind. The Lord said, let us make man in our image. And I want you to get this picture. At this moment, it was on earth as it is in heaven. Humanity living in harmony with God and with one another. This beautiful land that God had created, this garden of paradise. All of creation uh, for them to enjoy the sun, the moon, the stars, everything that God created. He said, listen, this is for you. The, the fruit trees, the animals, the beauty, the majesty. And if that wasn't enough, God said, I'm also going to give you myself. God said, it says very clearly that God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. And that word walk in the Hebrew literally means an intimacy, a fellowship, a closeness that Adam walked with God in. God says, I've given you everything that your heart could possibly desire. And there was only one no-no, just one. Just one thing that God said, listen, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. And how many of you guys know that's a lot? But not, not this one. Not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when God says no, a lot of times we want to know why. I mean, you know, when our kids, I tell my kids no, the, the logical response is, well, why? It's getting more and more as they get older. But God doesn't give them a reason. God doesn't give them an explanation. He just says, the reality is this, if you eat from the tree, it's going to be all bad. Like it's, it's going to result in, in death. And you say, well, why, why didn't God give them a little bit fuller of context? I mean, imagine if God came and said, imagine if God came and said, hey, listen, uh, let me just let you guys know. Don't eat from this tree. It's going to end up in death. Let me, let me tell you how. Uh, sin is going to enter into humanity, fracture the universe forever. You're going to usher sickness and disease. One of your kids is going to kill each other. Don't, don't touch the tree. At that moment, when Satan came with the fruit, it wasn't an apple. The Bible says it's fruit. So if you have an apple in your mind, it's not an apple, it's, it's fruit. Um, and imagine Satan coming with the fruit and all of a sudden, you know, presenting this opportunity. And Eve might have had a different thought. Like, oh, no, it's too deep, Satan. Uh-uh. Nope, the consequences are far too great. But then their obedience to God would have been based on a cost-benefit analysis. Their obedience to God would have been based on their own logic on their wisdom, and based on what they can get out of it. Are you tracking with me? And God said, I, I didn't want it to be, I didn't design you like that. I, I'm not just interested in your hands, I'm interested in your heart. And God said, I want your obedience to be rooted in me. Like, I want it to be rooted in my wisdom. I want it to be rooted in my logic. I want you to trust me. Are you guys tracking with me on that? And so, so there's just this, I don't know if you have experiences like the way I have experiences, but sometimes God just doesn't give us all the details. By his grace, he gives us a little bit, but he, he rarely gives us the full picture. Like when we came here to Fountain Church, I had no idea what was on the other side of our yes. I just knew that God said to go. Jackie and I, we both felt like the Lord is in this. There was so much mystery, but we trust the Lord and we trust his voice. But we, we, we didn't know what was on the other side. We didn't know that six and a half years later, seven years later, we'd be here with you right now in this moment. We had no idea what was on. We didn't even know if it was going to make it. We had no idea. And, and when we're lacking details, the question is, will we still trust God? Will we still walk in obedience 
to the Lord even when we lack some of the details. Like, like for instance, will, will we really trust the character of God? Will, are we really trusting? Will we trust in the goodness of God, the heart of God, and that if God is withholding something, we know that he is so good, it must be for our good and for a great reason. So God, we're going to trust you. Now, again, I'm not talking about blind faith. Christianity is not blind faith, but I don't have time to preach that message. I'm not talking about blind faith. I'm talking about this, this beautiful reality. Let me give you an example. You ever tell a friend, maybe you, you, you weren't able to give them all the details, but you said, hey, listen, I, I can't give you all the details. I'm in a hurry, but I just need you to trust me on this. And what do you do? If you respond to what they're asking you to, it's like trust in its purest form because you don't have all the details, but you're saying, I trust you. I don't need all the details because I know you. I know who you are. I know your character. I can count on you, etc." And so if you're taking notes, I want you to jot this down, is that God wants the obedience of our hearts before he wants the obedience of our hands. See, when we look at the central issue of sin, when we look at the central issue, it, it doesn't start with our hands, but we think it does a lot of times. And if you're new to church, what does sin mean? Sin just simply means rebellion against God. Like God says, I have a design of the way that life is, the way that life should be lived, the way that I have, I've designed this thing. And sin says, I don't like your design. I want to do my thing and I want to, you know, do my way. And yeah, I just, I don't want your way, God. James de describes sin like this. He who knows what to do and doesn't do it is sin, right? It's, it's, it's a rebellion against God. But isn't it true when we find ourselves wrestling in sin, like we're doing just stuff, like we just know we're not living right. Anybody ever been there? Come on. Some of you guys are like, no. Liar. I'm living in sin right now. Um, we, we, have, we have all experienced that moment where we're just not living right. And, and how many of you guys have started in that moment with, what do I need to stop doing? And a lot of times, what do I need to stop doing with my hands? Right? If I'm, if I'm doing something wrong, oh, surely I need, just, I need to stop doing this. I need to make sure that I maybe even start doing this. I need to. And so many times we start with our hands rather than asking a different question. I think rather than asking, what do I need to stop doing? We need to ask, where is my heart not trusting God that's leading me towards sin? Because it starts in the heart, not in the hands. Like, what am I not believing about God that's leading me to sin? Are you guys tracking with that? So many times we start with, okay, like, like for example, man, if, if I'm, you know, a, a habitual liar, then it's like, okay, I need to stop lying. No, you need to stop before you stop lying, you need to ask yourself that question. Where is my heart not trusting God that's leading me to lie? What do I not believe about God that's leading me to lie? Got to start with the heart. Many times we start with the hands, and that's where we get all messed up. And Satan knows this. So he, what does Satan do? Satan goes after the heart. He goes after the mind. He wants the inside of you. Here these guys are in paradise, and what looks to be a picnic is really a battlefield. Genesis chapter three, verse one, it says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, if you're, if you're new to church, you might be saying, okay, the serpent. So is this where we talk about the devil and demons? I knew you guys were crazy. Um, and yes, this is actually where we talk about um, that stuff. So the serpent is describing the devil. Now the devil isn't the devil's first name. It's a name to describe who he is. He is the accuser. 
He is the one who opposes God. He is the deceiver. He is the father of lies. He's the slanderer. Now, now notice that the serpent was made, that Satan and God are not on equal playing fields. Are you tracking with that? Like, it's not like this battle against good and evil, and it's like God is here and Satan is here, and they're just throwing blows back and forth. No, it's, Satan is a created being. There is no competition. And so, so I want you to get this picture because the enemy starts to lure Eve in and he says, come on, Eve, did, did God really say? And what does he go after? He's going after God. He's going after the word of God, which translates to the character of God, the goodness of God. I said, did God really say, I mean, I mean, come on, that you can't, you must not eat from any tree in the garden. And you see how he twists that? God said one tree, not any tree. Can I just tell you that Satan will always take the one thing and make it everything. He'll always take the one thing that God is saying, hey, that's not my best for you. And Satan will be like, you desperately need that above all things. He'll take the one thing and he'll make it everything. Are you, are, you, are you with me on that? He says, you must not eat from any tree in the garden. Such a lie. God says, no, you can eat from every tree, just one. That sounds like a great deal. Like they, they had the way better end of the deal. Just this one tree. But the enemy takes one thing and he makes it everything. You guys know how our kids do the same thing? Anybody have kids in the house online? Throw it in the chat because you feel my pain on this. Where you can take your kids out and we go to rock and jump. We go to ice cream. We go to the park. And then it's like, hey, Dad, can we stay up late? No. Ah! Ah! Right. One thing becomes everything. The enemy just loves to do that with us. If you're taking notes, you can jot this down. Is that Satan doesn't go after the existence of God. He goes after the goodness of God. Because I would propose to you that everybody today who, or the majority of people who are atheists today, how they get to their atheism is normally looking out into the world and saying, if God really exists, how could he be good? Therefore, because of all the tragedy in the world, God couldn't be good. And all the bad things that have happened to me, God couldn't be good. So therefore, he must not exist. The enemy always goes after the goodness of God. Because if I can get you to doubt the goodness of God, I can, I can maybe get you to believe that he doesn't exist or that he exists, but he's really not for you. Did God really say? Uh, like, like, he's, like God is going to hold out on you. Satan is, is attacking the goodness of God. If he was really good, he'd give it to you. But he's holding out on you because he just knows. He doesn't want you to be like him. He just knows. He's trying to rob you. He's really not good. And so up until this point, they were fully dependent on God. Like for all of their needs, for everything, they were fully dependent on God. And this is the great tragedy. You ready for this? The great tragedy isn't that they simply ate a piece of fruit. The great tragedy is in this moment, they said, God, we don't want you to be our source anymore. We don't want you to be our source. Like, I know you've given us everything, but I want to take your place. I want to put myself in your place, God. Like, like that sounds pretty bad. Hey, God, I want to take your place. Is that cool? But, but, but in reality, here's the deal. Is I don't think Eve was thinking that, but that's exactly what she was doing, and that's exactly what we do. 
When we say, no, 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 God, I want to take the reins of my life, my wisdom, my logic, my understanding of things is far superior than yours. So really what I'm asking for, God, is I want the throne instead of you. That's like a harsh reality, right? I want to rely on my own wisdom, my own thoughts. And we've done this before. We've done this with God and we've done this with other people. I don't want anybody ruling my life. God, you can kind of get a portion of my life, but not all of my life because I still have some of my own thoughts and some of my own perceptions, some of the own ways of thinking and how things should be done. And so, God, you can't totally control everything about my life. Yada, yada, yada. And what we're just simply saying is, God, I want the throne. Like, I just, I'm more competent than you are. And so, so but isn't it true that we do that and then we're, we're frustrated? The Bible says that man suffers from his own folly and then his heart rages at God. So it's like, God's like, all right, go for it. And then it doesn't work out too well. And we're like, what are you, how could you? He's like, what? I mean, think about it. When we begin to question the goodness of God, we find ourselves anxious, don't we? Full of anxiety because we don't believe that God is going to come through. We don't believe that God can. Or will, or will get it right, so it's all up to us. Ooh, that's a heavy load. It leads us to mistrust. Because I just don't know if I, can, if I can trust you. And so now everything is like i got to do it myself. You ever been in a moment where your wisdom runs out? Where you hit a wall and it's like, it's not adding up the way I thought it was. And we're, we're frustrated what about forgiveness? See, when we begin to question the goodness of God and his plan, his way, his design, we begin to take the throne and we say, no, no, no. I know what people really deserve, God. I'm not going to forget. I'm going to hold on to this bitterness and I'm going to make them pay because I know what they really deserve. Like you're cute and cool and I know you want everybody to get along, but this is what's real, God. And then, and then what about greedy? And I'm not just talking about money. But when we don't believe God is good, when, 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 when we lose sight of that beautiful reality, we don't believe God will provide. We don't believe God is going to come through. And so we put ourselves in a place that only he should have. And then we find ourselves anxious, mistrustful, battling relationally, and living in fear. Verse 6, it says this. It says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good, for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate. She also gave some to her husband. So shady. It's like, I'm going down. If I'm going down, you're going down, buddy. And then he eats it too, right? Constant, classic pastor joke right there, right? And so, but have you ever read the scripture like, have you ever read scripture like this? Oh, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. What are we doing for lunch, right? But this, this is a tragic moment. Like, this is a heartbreaking moment. Like, she's getting her eyes off, the one, off of the one who is ultimately desirable, who is ultimately pleasing, who is desirable above all things, who is the source of light in life, wisdom, the way, the truth, and the life. She's looking away from truth, and she's turning to a tree. As Paul said, she's getting her eyes off. Uh, we get our eyes off of the created one and on to creation. We, get, we, we cease to worship the living God who is creator of all things. And we start to worship the creation. But, but sin is deceiving. And the enemy is crafty. The enemy is so slick. It is, isn't it crazy how 
she, he's able to get her eyes off of the, tr- off of the source of life and onto a tree. He takes this one thing and he makes it everything. The greatest lie that Satan ever posed is something outside of God is going to satisfy your heart. And he doesn't need any new tricks because so many times, including myself, we buy into that lie and it leads us back to the same place every time. If you're taking notes, you can jot this down. When we stop believing that God is good, we start believing the tree is good. And doesn't that sound kind of silly? Like, the tree! It's amazing! And it sounds silly, but so many times we, we fall for the same trap, right? Temptation is always crouching at our door. Sin is crouching at our door, the Bible says. It desires to master you, but you must master it. The hard thing about mastering sin is sin never presents itself as it is. And neither does Satan. He, it's a, the Bible says that he masquerades as an angel of light. Sin always has to wear a mask. I like what Paul Tripp says. He says it this way. Sin, sin lives in a costume. That's why it's so hard to recognize. The fact that sin looks so good is one of the things that makes it so bad. That in order for it to do its evil work, it must present itself as something that is anything but evil. Life in a fallen world is like attending the ultimate masquerade party. Ready for this? Impatient yelling wears the costume of zeal for truth. Anybody ever been there? What about this one? Lust can masquerade as love for beauty. It's not uncommon that people will struggle with pornography and they'll say, I don't really think there's a big deal. I love the arts. I love the human body. Gossip does its evil work by living in the costume of concern and prayer. Anybody been a part of that one? Oh, guys, did you hear? We need to pray for them, right? It's like, okay. Uh, Craving for power and control wears the mask of biblical leadership. Fear of man gets dressed up as a servant's heart. The pride of always being right masquerades as a love for biblical wisdom. Evil simply doesn't present itself as evil, which is a part of its draw. You'll never understand sin's sleight of hand until you acknowledge that the DNA of sin is deception. And so Eve is in the thick of this. Sin has presented itself, not as itself. And what does she do? She unplugs from the source of life and into the tree. She unplugs from the source of life into destruction, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She takes and she eats. Now, you might be asking, like, why is fruit so bad? Like, what's the big deal? I mean, we have a little bit of context, so we know that it's bigger than fruit. But it doesn't seem like fruit would do this, all this catastrophe that we've experienced as a result of this one act of disobedience. I mean, think about it. One pastor said it like this. Man, I can see if, like, Adam and Eve burned down the garden and slaughtered all the animals and were, like, chomping on Bambi's neck. Like that, that would make more sense. Like God was like, something's wrong with you. <laughs> like, but they ate a piece of fruit. And as a result of that one piece of fruit, the ultimate event of sin fracturing humanity started with a bite of fruit. Sickness, disease, war, bloodshed. I just started with One moment that they thought was a picnic, but was really a battlefield. 
Genesis chapter 3, verse 22 and 24 says, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree and eat and live forever. Isn't that heartbreaking? The greatest consequence of the garden was banishment from the presence of God. And it says, So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken, and he drove the man out. He placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. The ultimate consequence that Adam and Eve experienced was banishment from the garden, banishment from the presence of God. And so God put a flaming sword in front of that thing to say, listen, it's only holiness that enters into this place. And you try to enter in, you're going to die. And so, so get this picture. I mean, that's a huge consequence, but there were several other consequences as well, right? Uh, Adam and Eve realized that they were naked. You remember that? God came looking for him and says, hey, Adam, where you at? And Adam's like, I'm naked. God's like, you've always been naked. But now you realize it because, because shame and guilt has now entered in, where at one moment they were fully known and they were clothed by the goodness and the presence of God, that that, is no long, that, that, is, that sin fractured that reality. And then, then how about childbirth, ladies? Makes it very clear that the pain in childbirth was a result of this moment. Shout out to Eve on that. Rough. Uh, that the garden, uh, that, that it hit Adam's work of the land would be, the ground would be cursed, so now thorns and thistles would rise up, so it would make your gardening so much more difficult. Right, so then there's all, there's, we, we see all of these no consequences, but there's one consequence that we don't talk about a lot. Sometimes I think because we, we don't see it. We talk a lot about it here, but, but I, don't, I don't know if we, we probably don't talk about it enough. But, but it's, it's this, this consequence of knowing good and evil. You see, Adam and Eve said, we don't want you, God, to be our source anymore. So now they're not dependent on him and they're left to themselves, their own wisdom, their own logic, their own self-sufficiency. And now they have this understanding of the knowledge of good and evil. You say, well, how was that a consequence? Oh, man, it was detrimental. If you're taking notes, you can jot this down. Because they gained the knowledge of good without the ability to do it consistently, and they gained the knowledge of evil without the strength to avoid it constantly. And, and so, so imagine this. It's like, I know what's good, I know what's evil, but I don't have any power. Like, I, I know the difference but knowing information did not give them the ability or the strength to avoid sin constantly, to do good consistently. And so the only thing that they were left to is to know the difference. Paul in chapter Romans, uh, Paul the apostle in Romans chapter seven, Romans chapter seven explains about this battle. I think it's kind of a clear picture. He says, man, the things that I don't want to do, I do. And the things that I want to do, I don't do. And he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to the Lord. The answer is found in Christ Jesus. And so, so unless we're connected to the source, there's no power to really live the life that God has called us to live. Uh, let me give you an example. So if I, if I give you a computer and I say, hey, let me give you access to the World Wide Web. I'm going to bring, even bring up Google for you. Man, get all the knowledge that you want till your heart's content, but I only leave you with 2% battery. Man, you can have the computer, you can have all this access, but no power. And I think one of the heartbreaking things is the average lifespan is about 70 to 80 years. 
And how many people, I mean, they gain so much knowledge, they gain so much things, so many things, yet go all the way to the end of their life, never connecting to the source of life. And knowing that the, the life that God has for them, the way God designed the purpose, I think the graveyard is full of potential. God-given potential that was just never tapped into. And so, so this can even play out in the church. So it's easy to kind of, you know, it's easy to kind of point the finger here or there, but this can happen even inside the church. When I look back at my life, let me, let me explain this a little bit. A lot of times, man, I was living wild and crazy. And not everybody who comes to Christ lives wild and crazy. My wife was the exact opposite. She was like a super good girl, all that stuff. But she had other issues. She had issues of pride and, you know, and more of a kind of a pharmaceutical deal. Mine was very blatant. You just look at me like, oh, you, you ain't living right. Um, and then all of a sudden what, what happens is you come to church and you hear the pastor, man, don't smoke anymore. Don't drink. Don't go to parties. Seth's got to wait till marriage. And you're like, man, I'm not living right. And do you know that you can, you can trade some of, you, you can change some of your behavior while still never being connected to the source? You could still be living in the same tree, but just jumping to a different branch. Like you could jump from what appears to be an evil branch and then you could jump to a good branch. And so, so maybe like you were addicted to drugs. I mean, it's just a clear example. Maybe you were addicted to drugs and all of a sudden you're not addicted to drugs anymore. Maybe you used to treat your wife horrible and now you're treating her a little bit better. Maybe you jumped on the serve team. Like, oh man, you're in small groups and everything looks great. It looks like you're plugged into the source of life, but in reality, maybe you just jumped to a different branch. You say, well, what do I mean by that? Well, I, I used to be addicted to drugs, but now I'm addicted to applause. It just looks better and more palatable, right? So I serve now, not out of an overflow of acceptance, but because I'm addicted to accolades. I now sacrifice my life and my time and my finances, my resource, because it makes me feel valued. And then all of a sudden, it's a slippery slope. All of a sudden, we start to feel like my forgiveness and my relationship with God is based on what I do rather than what he's done. My identity is found in what I do rather than in who he is and who he says that I am. And really, we still have not connected to the source. We've just jumped to another branch. I think a great picture of this is in Luke chapter 15. Because the reality is there's, a, there's, there's three different ways you can live. The first one we see in Luke chapter 15, it's the story of the prodigal sons. Not the prodigal son, but the prodigal sons. There was one son that was lost outside of the house. That was very obvious he was lost, right? He's living wild. He, he basically told the father, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance so I can go live my life. And that's what he did. He spent his money on wild living. And so it was just obvious. Like the older brother's like, my brother's a train wreck. But the, the oldest brother was in the father's house, but he was just as lost. Same tree, just different branch. And you see it come out because uh, not only was the younger, not only was the, the, the brother that was living wild, not only was, was he disconnected from the father's heart, but you have the son in the house that was just as far. 
And you see that when his brother comes to his senses and he comes back home, the father puts a robe around him, like reestablishes his sonship, throws a party, kills the fattened calf, and the older brother's like, what is this? Like everything that I've done for you, never done this for me. What was he saying? It's God, you owe me. Can I tell you, you know you're living on a branch is when you're following Jesus, you're, you're serving the Lord and something bad happens. And in that moment, you feel like, how could you let this happen? Look at all that I've done. You're on a branch. And not connecting in that moment to the source of life. So see, you can live irreligious like the son living wild. You can live religious like the older son and be just as far from the father's heart. But then Jesus offers a third way called the gospel, where we unplug from the tree entirely and plug back into the source of life. See, like, let me even take the word of God, for example. The word of God is so important. If Eve would have leaned into the word of God a little bit more about what God really did say, it, it might have saved her. But the word of God is life. It's sustenance. It's food for us. It's living. It's active. Right? It's, it's so important to the life of a follower of Jesus. But, but can I just tell you that the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they knew the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Not only did they have them memorized, it would say that they could quote it backwards to you. They said they knew it so well that you could drive a nail through the book, nail it to a fence, and they can tell you every scripture that that nail pierced. That's how much they knew the word of God. But then Jesus says this to them. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Whoa. And he says this in John chapter 5, verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. It's just the bottom line is you can have knowledge of him and still not know him. And that's why I think, you know, what, what does that equal? That equals religiosity. And I think that's why, man, so many people are struggling. So many people are exhausted because they're trying to follow Jesus living in the tree while not connected to the source. And so it's like, I do good for a while. I kind of got some behavior modification in like a couple of weeks, but there's no heart transformation. There's no real healing that takes place. And so there's professors that I know I know professors that know the Bible better than me, and they're atheists. Because it's not just knowledge about God. It's, 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 it's you, you have to understand that the scriptures from Genesis, all the way from Genesis, were pointing to the reality of Jesus, the Messiah to come. From Old Testament, New Testament, everything was pointing to Jesus, to this connection. And so Satan's like, listen, go to church. That's cool. Do you know Get plugged in. That, that's great. All those things are vehicles, but they don't equal, they don't, all those things are great vehicles, but they don't guarantee you're connected to the source. I think it's just important that we, that we know that. Are you tracking with me? And so Satan works whatever he can. Keep us religious or irreligious. Just don't connect to the source. Just don't really live, follow, and abide in Christ. You say, well, Pastor Matt, okay, well, I don't want that. So what do, what, do, what do we do? And I wish I had like this, this moment right now where I would just tell you that this, this revelatory thing. But I think some of the most simplest things we need revelation on. 
And so if you were to ask me, man, how do I stay out of that tree? Or going back to some of those old thoughts and mindsets, how do I stay plugged in to the source? Or sometimes we're plugged into the source, but the enemy has us believing that we're not. And so we still live in the tree. And the Lord's like, everything you need, I've given it to you. Everything you need for life and godliness, I've given it to you. So this is the big reveal. What do we do? We need to believe and keep believing in Jesus. You say, well, believe and keep believing in Jesus. Absolutely. Because remember, believing in the Lord is an issue of the heart. Let me show you. John chapter 6, verse 29, Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. Why is this so important? Because if your heart is set on him, the rest of your life is like everything flows from this reality. This word belief, it means to be fully persuaded of God's goodness, of his providence, of his sovereignty, of his faithfulness. And so why is this so important? Why does, why does Jesus sum it up to this right here? Is because this describes the condition of our hearts. And then you hear us say it all the time. You can tell me what you know, but you'll live what you believe. Right? All these different things. It's connected to your heart. I'll prove it to you. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. God wants your heart before your hands. And if we get that backwards, you'll find yourself exhausted. You'll find yourself living this religious life outside of the reality of relationship and intimacy with God. And it'll be so tired. It's taxing. You may do good for a while, but then it's just like, oh, because there's no power. God wants your heart. If he has your heart, your hands are going to follow. Are you with me? If he has your heart, your mouth is going to follow. But he's after your heart. So Jackie and I, we, uh, when we first moved to Pleasanton, um, it, it was pretty funny. We, we decided to get some chickens, and this was, man, like seven years ago, maybe six and a half years ago or something. And we decided to get some chickens, and our neighbors, they were like pretty savvy. They had some goats, and, and, and I think they had some horses. And we lived on this little piece of property off of Sunol, so a little tiny house, but it had a big yard. So we're like, we're going to get some chickens. This is going to be awesome. And so... Long story short, we get some chickens and they said, hey, you, you got to put them in like at dusk because we have foxes and coyotes here. And we're like, oh, okay, yeah, no problem. We'll make sure that we're, we're mindful of that. But then, you know, the summertime came and we would just let the hens roost on the top of the cage. And sometimes it wouldn't get dark till about nine o'clock. And so we would just leave, just let them roost. And we did that for months. And we just felt like, oh, it's, it's not, you know, our neighbors, they mean well, but, you know, we really know what's going on now. We are in the chicken business. And uh, so, so I remember one night we're sitting down on the couch and just one of those comfortable moments where you don't want to get up and you're like, man, I'm going to take care of them in a minute. I'm just going to give them in a minute. And next thing you know, we hear this, Bow! like we hear them like, scream and our house is super small so I literally jumped up off the couch like 30 seconds jump on the couch run right into the kitchen out the door and I just see feathers everywhere and then I see one of our other little chickens just sitting on the fence like this <laughs> just terrified and a fox came and killed two of our chickens took, I couldn't even find them I was like how do you get two in like 30 seconds fox is quick and here's the crazy part about it 
Unlike Adam and Eve, we had all the details and we knew the consequences, yet we still didn't believe that it was gonna happen. And so can I just encourage you, one of the things that I think is so important, and when I say believe, I'm, I'm saying, listen, once you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and God places his spirit on the inside of you, you belong to him. So I'm not saying like you need to get saved every day. No, I'm saying, how do you walk and live out your salvation as the Lord says to do it with fear and trembling? Can I encourage you to, to preach the gospel to yourself every day? You know, the gospel isn't just what saves us. The good news of Jesus just doesn't save us, but sustains us and carries us to the day of completion. The gospel reminds us of the beauty, the majesty, and the goodness of who he is. Because here's the truth, is that if he can get you, if Satan can get you to doubt the goodness of God, he can keep you from intimacy with God. And that's his goal. And so as, as we close in Genesis, it was very clear. The enemy said, listen, or, or God made it very clear that the enemy will bruise his heel, but he will crush his head. All the way back in Genesis, we see a foreshadow. We see a prophetic utterance of the Messiah to come, a prophetic utterance of the Christ, of the Messiah, of Jesus. All the way back to the garden, God said, I've got a plan for this. I know sin has fractured humanity, but I have a plan for this. And so, so how was he going to do that? How was he going to crush his head? You ready for this? Jesus was going to deal with the tree. I love how, how Tim Keller put it. He says, Jesus found himself in a garden just like Adam. God told Adam, obey and you will live. But Jesus was in a gloomy garden. The father told Jesus, obey me and you're going to die. See, see the reality is, is that Jesus has always deserved the garden. I mean, it was the Lord that stepped out of eternity into time, taking on the form of a body of a servant, emptying himself, taking on the form of a servant and dying the death that you and I should have died so we could live the life that he's called us to live. See, Jesus deserves the garden and the truth is we deserve the tree. But Jesus said, listen, I'm gonna take the tree so you can get the garden. And it was on the cross that he crushed the serpent's head. It's the beauty of the gospel. It's heartbreaking. Eve took the fruit and ate. Jesus sat with his disciples and he said, take this and eat. This is my body. This is my blood. And what does he say? As often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. Remember this. Remember this. Keep coming back to this reality. Preach the gospel to yourself on a regular basis. Preach it to yourself every single day. Remind yourself of this. Because remember that there was a flaming sword that was placed in the garden. And Jesus said, man, I'm going to take, I'm going to take the sword so that you can get back into the garden, so that you can have access to when Jesus died, the veil was torn. So now once banished from the presence of God, now through Christ and his blood, we have access. It's the beauty of the gospel. You see, when you preach that to yourself every single day, it's really hard not to be moved. It's really hard not to be moved. I thought that was gonna be the end of this, the message, but last night I was, as I was preaching it to myself, because that's what I do on Saturdays, the Lord said, Matt, I want you to understand that now the Christian life is a battlefield. But in Christ, even though it's a battle, 
it can feel like a picnic. Like, what do you mean? Psalm chapter 23, verse five, King David said this, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Because the battle doesn't belong to us, it belongs to him. My dependency is not upon me, it's upon him. The power is not coming from me and my own wisdom, my own logic, but no, it's coming from him. And so even when there's a battle waging war around me, I can sit at the table in peace. It doesn't nullify the reality of the battle. It's just in the midst of all of the hell of it, I can still have an anchor for my soul. It prepares a table before us in the presence of, his, of our enemies, which goes back to the table of Jesus sitting with his disciples. You know, the only time the table is used is when Jesus is sitting down with his disciples at the Last Supper. And that word table is the word trapezio. It's where we get the word trapeze. As a trapeze artist, what do they do? They swing and they let go. And it's almost as if to say, the Lord is saying, listen, I'm letting go of my table so you can have a seat at it. I'll prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you so much. For this beautiful reality of the gospel. Lord, we don't want to live irreligiously. We don't want to live religiously. We want to live with you at the center of our lives. We want to live in intimacy with you, in relationship with you, God. We don't want to jump from branch to branch. We want to be connected to the source of life. Jesus, you said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And I believe that message is still the power of God unto salvation the beauty of what you've done. And so for the believer today, I pray that this would reinforce just a, a, fr a fresh wind, God, that, that when we find ourselves dabbling in sin or lured away by sin, that we wouldn't ask, what do I need to stop doing with my hands? We need to ask ourselves, where have I lost sight of God? What is my heart believing that has led me toward this place? Where, what am I believing about you that has led me away from you, God? I pray that we would start with the heart, God. And that, like John the Baptist said, we would bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Let that be a rhythm of our life, Lord. Thanks again for joining us here at Fountain Church. For more details on how to get connected, visit us at fountainchurch.cc. We're also on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. We'll see you next time.